Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the second episode of our series on risk prevention strategies. In this episode, Nicole Atala and Matt Kreiser, attorneys in Palero Maza's Labor and Employment and Litigation and Dispute Resolution Groups, sit down to discuss common types of employee complaints, the legal protections offered to complaining employees, and tips for effectively responding to complaints. Your response to an employee claimant can be the difference between an employee who files a lawsuit and one who doesn't, even if they do not always get the answer they want to hear. And responding with knowledge, understanding, and confidentiality to the extent possible promotes employee stability and a positive work environment while minimizing legal liability. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply, and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. Good afternoon, and welcome to Risk Prevention Strategies, Responding Effectively to Internal Workplace Complaints. My name is Nicole Atala. I'm a partner at Flera Mazza. I chair our Labor and Employment Practice Group. I deal with employers on all sorts of matters, including Title VII, the ADA, the Fair Labor Standards Act, and wrongful termination. So you can imagine that one of the topics I often talk to my clients about is effective workplace investigations, whether they've been completed in a timely and efficient manner, such that we can properly defend against any particular complaint. I'm here with my associate, Matthew Kreiser. I'll let him take a minute to introduce himself. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Matthew Kreiser, and I'm an associate in Polaro Mazza's Litigation and Dispute Resolution Practice Group. And part of my duties is representing employers in matters uh, involving uh, employment litigation. And oftentimes, topics like today come up of making sure that employers have an effective complaint policy in place. So we really uh, thank you for being here today. I'm enjoying discussing this matter with you and Nicole. Great. If you don't know Polaro Mazza, we're a business law firm. We serve as a strategic partner to government contractors and commercial businesses all across the United States. In addition to the Labor and Employment Practice Group, which I chair, and the litigation and dispute resolution that Matt is a member of, we also have a business and transactions practice, a government contract practice. We cover a broad range of topics and subject matters to efficiently represent our clients. So today we're going to be talking basically about workplace investigations and what you should be thinking about when you conduct those workplace investigations. We'll also be covering evaluating your corporate policies, implementing an effective complaint procedure, investigating complaints. What do you need as far as an investigative report? Clients often tell me, Nicole, why do I have to do a report? Well, not all reports are created equal. And we'll talk about the different types of reports you might consider as a work product. We're going to talk about taking corrective action and what that means or can mean, and how to conclude the investigation. How do you tie up all those loose ends to make sure that you have done what you need to do in order to, one, address the employee's concern, but also to protect the company from liability? All right, let's dive in. There has been an increase in complaints and administrative investigations by a number of agencies. The EEOC is one of them, and the EEOC deals with all of those discrimination and harassment-type complaints under Title VII. The Department of Labor covers wage and hour and ERISA-type complaints, so anything dealing with, I didn't get my pay on time, I didn't get 
the right amount of pay? Can you properly take that deduction? They also deal with Family and Medical Leave Act complaints. And we also talk about the OFCCP is also another organization. And if you are unfamiliar with the OFCCP, the OFCCP is the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Program. And that's specific to government contractors. Think of them like the EEOC for government contractors. So they're going to deal with many of the same subject matters as the EEOC, only from the GUPCON side of the house. There's also the Investigator General and a number of other agencies. But what we have seen over the last couple of years is an increase in these types of complaints. Hopefully, the complaint comes to you first. And it's at that point in time where you have this unique opportunity to try to resolve the complaint to, you know, might not be what the employee wants, but at least to address the complaint before that complaint ever goes to one of these investigatory agencies. And that's really what we're trying to do is mitigate your risk. If you can get out in front of the complaint and cultivate an environment where employees are comfortable coming to you, even if they don't eventually get what they want, you're in a much better position to fend off those types of administrative agency complaints. Not all complaints are created equal, and we're going to talk about that today. Some complaints you're going to get that don't involve one of these areas of law. They don't involve wage and hour. They don't involve a discrimination or harassment complaint. They don't involve anything where the company has done something legally wrong. Does that mean you shouldn't look into the complaint and address the employee's concerns? No, that's not what it means. But it does mean that you might have to adjust your investigation expectations and their expectations expectations as to the outcome of the investigation based on whether there is kind of an elevated need to really dive in to a complaint. So that's what I mean when I say not all complaints are created equal, but certainly addressing those complaints with employees in in different types of ways is going to be critical. Because even if that complaint is not related to, say, a discrimination or harassment complaint or a wage and hour complaint, It really cultivates an environment where employees know when they come to you, they will be taken seriously and listened to. And that is really, really key to fending off a lot of these complaints. The first thing we really want you to do, though, is evaluate your corporate policies. And the key question I always ask is, when was the last time you reviewed your corporate policies? Sometimes we take for granted that we have an EEO policy or we have something, we must have something in the handbook that deals with how we deal with complaints here as an organization or who to go to when you have a complaint. But what you'll often find is that if you haven't looked at that procedure recently, you're going to likely see gaps or you're going to find that what you put in your handbook doesn't match up with what you actually do as an organization. So great, you've checked the box that you have a policy that looks okay, but you're not really doing it as an organization. So think about the questions that we have listed here. Are you doing what you committed to doing? If not, you need to change either what's in your handbook or you need to change what you're doing on the corporate level. So they really should match up. It should be a gut check on what you're doing. Two, does anything need to be updated? Is there something that's left out? I will be the first person to tell you that I don't like 185-page handbooks. I think that employees don't read them. They're not always particularly useful depending on your industry. I like really concise, to-the-point handbook. So I do not mean to suggest that you need to have everything and a box of chocolates in your handbook. But you do need to look at whether there are things in there that can be taken out, whether there are things that can be more succinct, 
whether there's something that needs to be updated based on your policies, practices, or the applicable law. Make sure that you've checked your handbook against state laws. So often you have employed you know, folks in a lot in a couple of different states since the last time you updated your handbook. And you really do need to check to make sure that your handbook is compliant with those state laws. Now, sometimes we get around this by saying, oh, the policy is not intended to violate any state law and will comply with that state law. Well, that's all fine, well, and good, unless there's something in that state that requires you from an EEO perspective or state FEMLA perspective or wage and hour perspective to have something additional in your handbook. California is a perfect example of that. There are a couple of things like meal and rest breaks and things that fall under wage and hour law that are big ticket items for class actions that really should be in your handbook or a state addendum to your handbook. Don't forget about remote workers, particularly in the time of COVID, where a lot of folks are working remotely. They're, you know, working from, say, a family home or they've moved to California or New York or D.C. or Maryland or another state and that's far away from your main office. In many states, once that person works there for a period of time, they are subjected to those state laws. And that period of time doesn't have to be very long. In Maryland, it can be a couple of days. So you really need to understand that even though they might not be primarily located in one state, if they're spending telecommuting time or a significant portion of time in those other states, you're going to be subject to those state laws and should take that into account when you're looking at your policies and and what laws you might be subjected to as an organization. We always recommend annual review because laws get passed, things get updated. So someone internal in the organization should be reading through your handbook once a year. Does that necessarily mean you have to have a full rewrite every year? No. But somebody should be gut checking your handbook on an annual basis and you should have your counsel or advisor periodically review for a third party perspective just to get a sense of whether there might be something that you're not thinking of that they might be able to catch. So you might decide you don't want to do that on an annual basis, but really write down and think about how frequently we as an organization should be reviewing our handbook and when we should have third-party review of our handbook. And put that in your calendar as an action item, because otherwise it's going to get missed. You know, nobody loves doing this stuff (laughs) that I know of anyway. So put it in your calendar, make it a to-do item every year. You're going to get some peace of mind that when that complaint, you know, comes up or when you get some sort of administrative action or lawsuit, that you have the tools you need to defend it. And then primarily, the focus of today is investigations, right? So a key component of that handbook should be whether you've really outlined your commitment to investigating complaints. And is that in one section, multiple sections? Where is that? Because that's what employees are going to refer to when they proceed to file a complaint. Thank you, Nicole. Not only is it important for employers to have policies in place regarding whether or not their employers or employees are paid correctly, to have anti-discrimination and anti-retaliation policies in place, but it's also important to have a process to receive and respond to complaints regarding potential violations of the employer's policies. Thus. Employers should create a formal complaint and response procedure that has multiple independent avenues for employees to report suspected instances of potential policy violations. Now, the employer can choose to have this process and procedure memorialized in an internal document, but it's not 
always necessary. And that's based on the employer size and the number of employees. Regardless, there should be some process in place that the employer uses to receive and respond to employee complaints. Now, an effective complaint response procedure has certain elements that an employer should think about including in their processes. Of these elements, the first being multiple avenues to report, as I stated earlier. It is very important to consider that an employee, a complaining employee, should never be required to complain to their harasser. It is often in the employer-employee relationship that an employee will have complaints or could have complaints regarding their supervisor. And the process should never have that employee, aggrieved employee, complain to their supervisor who is the one they are complaining of. And that should never occur. Second, consider identifying an individual within the company to receive, address, and investigate workplace complaints. This person could be an HR representative based on the size of the employer, but it need not be an HR representative. But there should be some point person that is in the company that will be the initial point of contact to receive employee complaints. Also, it is wise to consider a method for employees to file complaints potentially anonymously through an anonymous hotline or other complaint submission vehicles that is not necessarily a direct report to their supervisor or some individual in the company. When you have multiple avenues for an employee to complain, it is a defense for the, available to the employer that if there are multiple avenues for the employee to complain and they did not use those available avenues, it could potentially avoid liability to the employer. So it's very important to have multiple independent ways for an employee to lodge a complaint regarding a potential violation of the employer's policy. Second element, it's important to train managers and supervisors to understand their obligations under the employer's policies. And that a lot of times managers and supervisors are the initial point person that will receive a complaint potentially informally as opposed to HR. So it's important for the employer to instruct their managers and supervisors how to respond after receiving a complaint and what process to follow. It is not unusual for managers or supervisors to be friendly with their subordinates, and they may not respond to a complaint received in an appropriate fashion given their relationship with their staff. So they need to understand what their obligations are under the employer's policies if they do receive a complaint. Third point, timeliness of response. This point is somewhat self-explanatory, but it's important to not let an employee complaint languish. It's important for the employer upon receiving the complaint to take prompt action. If the employer does not take prompt action, the employee may not feel like the employer took their complaint seriously, and they may escalate the matter. For an example, if they're complaining of potentially being harassed based on their sex, they may escalate the matter to an administrative agency such as the EEOC through the filing of a formal charge of discrimination. So it's very important to respond timely when a complaint is received. And again, an employee should never be required to complain to their harasser. Often, employee complaints of discrimination involve their supervisor, as I stated previously. This is why it is important to have multiple avenues for the employee to complain which, and this is communicated to the employees. Fifth, the investigation process and procedure. Effectively responding to complaints, given the nature of the complaint, often involves conducting an investigation into the, into the complaint. 
And based off the nature of the allegation, it is important for the employer to decide whether or not a formal investigation needs to be conducted. And lastly, no retaliation. It is very important that employees know that if they submit a complaint to their employer, that they will not be retaliated against by their employer or by the person of who they're complaining. And this has obvious reasons, potential liability to the employer should that employee who complained be retaliated against. Yeah, and just to quickly add on a little bit here, obviously the goal here is to make sure that when a complaint comes in to your team, however it comes into your team, that you guys have the process, that you know where to go, you know what comes first, second, and third, even if it's not a full-blown formal investigation, even if it's, I looked back at your hours last week and you did not work enough for overtime and I'm going to go back and explain it to you, or whatever the case might be, it could be a very informal investigation. But the idea behind an effective complaint procedure is that your team and all of your employees are going to know what the protocol is. That's what we want to make sure happens, that everybody's instructed as to what is going to happen and how it's going to occur. The number of cases we see every year where the supervisor did not advance a complaint because they're friends with the employee and the employee said, I am not officially complaining, but I feel like I'm being sexually harassed or I feel like once that supervisor knows that information, that supervisor should be trained. They should know the protocol and say, stop right there. I'm your supervisor. I have to proceed in in notifying HR. But if everybody knows the rules of the road, we're not going to get those types of calls into our office, right? It's it's already going to be taken care of. You raise very good points. Okay, now for investigating complaints. Once a complaint is received by the employer, it is important to treat each complaint and the complaining party with respect. Oftentimes, employees have difficulty in deciding whether to report suspected policy violations, including discrimination or other forms of harassment. And the employees often fear retaliation by the employer or their harasser if they are another employee. So it's important that when a complaint is received to make sure that it is dignified and respected and to ensure that the employee knows that their employer is taking their complaint seriously. Now, as part of conducting an investigation, once a complaint is received, there are multiple steps that an employer should consider. First, the employer should consider designating a neutral investigator. An implicated party in the complaint should never serve as an investigator. Investigations must be done by somebody that is neutral. So when a complaint comes in, whatever the structure of the employer is, the person that will run point as part of any investigation should be neutral and at arm's length from either the complainant or the harasser. An alternative option as opposed to conducting an internal investigation with the employer's personnel, is to consider appointing a third party or outside counsel to conduct the investigation. When counsel is involved earlier in the process, there are a number of benefits, some of them being control over the process and whether or not the employer makes any admissions, which we'll touch on later, during the the investigation or follow-up process. Second, determine the appropriate scope of the investigation the scope of the investigation is going to depend largely on the nature of the claims. If they're innocuous, could be general disputes among employees that do not involve any violation per se of policies versus more severe allegations concerning, for example, uh, claims of sexual harassment or other forms of discrimination. So the employer should think through whether or not upon receiving a complaint, 
is a formal investigation needed? Can the matter be resolved through outside of an informal investigation, investigative process through in more informal means? And that's by assessing the nature of the complaint and determining the scope that will go into the investigation. Third, the employer, upon receiving a complaint, will want to obtain all relevant documents and information. Now, it can be tough acquiring all the needed documents and information, but if there are documents such as emails, text messages, instant message communication, or other electronically stored information that's available to the employer on their machines or on their servers related to the possible complaint, they're going to want to gather that at the outset. Make sure you have it all in one file in one place not only for ease of reference, but also for completeness. Next, once you've received the information needed that's available to you, and you've determined the appropriate scope of the investigation, you're going to want to meet privately with the complaining party and the person that's the subject of the complaint. When meeting with the complaining party, you would want to make sure that the complaining party is given the opportunity to explain in detail the basis for their complaint. And as the employer, you will want to obtain as many details as possible from the complaining party. And it's important when meeting with the complaining person to assure them of confidentiality to the extent possible as part of the investigation. It may be necessary, given the nature of the complaint or the policies that are deemed to be violated, for the employer to let the complaining party know that it may be necessary for the employer to disclose some of the information provided during the investigative process. But that confidentiality will be maintained as much as the employer is able to do so. Also, when meeting with the complaining person, it's important to make sure that the employee understands that the employer does not tolerate any retaliatory behavior simply because they complain, whether it be from the employer or from the harasser themselves. vital to ensure they understand that no retaliation will be tolerated and they should promptly report any suspected instances of retaliation that they've experienced after having made a complaint. And it's also important to note to the complaining party that their continued participation during the investigation of their complaint is essential. Nicole will touch on issues that arise during investigation with failure to participate, but it's important to inform the complaining person that and once they make the complaint that their continued participation at the needs of the employer's investigative process will be needed. And it is also advisable once meeting with the, the complainant and taking down the facts and their statement to reduce the employee's complaint into writing and have the employee read a summary of their claim and sign it. Lastly, you would want to provide information about the investigative process. What can the employee expect? to occur during the process and what information they will be provided. And it's also important to explain what records the employer will keep in the file that they're created as part of investigation if this becomes a more formal process. After meeting with the complaining party, you will want to meet with the responding party or the person subject to the complaint. It's advisable to try to provide as much detail as possible about the allegations, the nature of the allegations, the information received from the complaining person. It's also advisable to let the responding party know that they will be given the opportunity to respond to any allegations against them, either in writing or through a formal interview process. Oftentimes, persons that are the subject of a complaint, 
can feel isolated or that their, their employer is not going to listen to them. So it's important to let them know that they will have an opportunity to tell their side of the story, either through a written summary or through an interview with their employer as part of a, a formal investigation process. Again, as you would with the complaining person, with the subject, you would want to inform them of your investigative process and potential outcomes that could result if the employer determines that there has been a violation of the employer's policies. And potential disciplinary actions, which we'll touch on a little bit more later, can involve counseling, additional training, removal if it's a supervisor and a subordinate, removal of the subordinate from the supervisor's chain of command, among other things. Also important is with the complaining person to explain that this process is confidential and to communicate to the, the person subject to the investigation that retaliation on their end will not be tolerated against the complaining person. And also to explain what records will be kept as part of any investigation conducted. Next, after meeting with the complainant and the respondent, you would want to identify which witnesses, based on the information you've obtained, have potentially relevant information, and then decide who you would want to meet with to obtain further information about the nature of the complaint or the potential defenses of the responding party. Once you have this list of individuals created, you'll want to schedule witness interviews. And when meeting with the individual witnesses, it's important to assure the witness that the employer also, in this repeat theme, does not tolerate any retaliation against them for cooperating in an investigation or for providing information as part of the investigation. But the employer can inform the employee that there may be disciplinary action taken for providing knowingly false information as part of an employer's investigative process. And lastly, you will want to consider whether or not an informal resolution is possible. In some situations, it may be appropriate to consider early resolution of a complaint without undertaking a full investigation. This approach may be useful where, for instance, the complainant indicates a desire to sit down and discuss the matter with the responding party informally. The substance of the complaint appears to result from a miscommunication between the, the parties or the complaint of behavior is not on its face serious enough to constitute a violation of the employer's policies. So for these particular instances, it might be a good idea to see if the complaining party would want to resolve this matter informally and expeditiously as possible, given these types of complaints. And now I'll turn things back over to Nicole for her to discuss the challenges in conducting investigations and the preparation of an investigative report. At the end of the day, these investigations are often met with challenges. So it's all fine, well, and good if we have done the investigation or we started the investigation. But along the way, you hit bumps in the road, right? And one of those is maintaining confidentiality. We want to be able to assure people that we are going to maintain their confidence no matter what in any circumstances. But the reality is that we often can't do that. And Matt has alluded to some of those situations. For example, sometimes in order to share with the respondent the substance of the complaint, we have to reveal who the person is that complained for them to substantially respond to that complaint, right? That's why we advise the person responding that they can't retaliate against that person. You know, sometimes we have to disclose a person's identity or the, the facts themselves 
lend to that person's or the complainer's identity. But we do our best. And that's why we don't want to overpromise confidentiality to Matt's points earlier. We never want to overpromise confidentiality, but we do want to assure people that we do our best and we will communicate with them as much as we can throughout the process. Sometimes we don't have access to the accused or the witnesses, and that can be a big problem. Particularly if you're in government contracting, sometimes the accused is a government employee or another contractor employee, and we don't have access to them. That doesn't mean you don't complete your own investigation. What it does mean is that you do what you can internally and then evaluate whether you have an obligation to go out to that third party, either the government contracting officer, the EEO office, or a third party to let them know that you've received a complaint and you'd like to work with them to resolve the complaint. Sometimes you get a good response. Sometimes you get no response there. But your obligation is to do what you can in order to complete an investigation. But you certainly you know, don't have the right to interview a subcontractor's employees unless you have that right in, in your subcontract. You, the government is certainly not going to take it kindly if you start calling their government employees and trying to get interviews. But you can work through those agencies or other businesses in order to try to resolve the complaint or have them investigate on their end and then they communicate with you. I often get questions about the serial complainer. The person that complains, it seems every other week, they always have an issue. And what tends to happen over time is we don't take them as seriously. But those serial complainers can also be the highest risk people. They can also cause a lot of legal liability and issues, even if you've done nothing wrong or your people have done nothing wrong, because those people obviously are more comfortable complaining. So you still want to take all of the same steps that you've taken before in making sure that you talk to that person, that you determine what the scope of the investigation is going to be. And as hard as it is, try to treat their complaints anew every single time you get one. Obviously, if it becomes a situation where you believe they are not being truthful or they don't have a genuine belief, however misguided it might be, that they don't have a genuine belief that their complaint is you know, holds water, then you can talk to them about whether you have concerns that they're submitting false complaints. And then that can be met with discipline. Although you really want to be careful about that. Generally speaking, you want to listen to their complaints, take a look at their complaints to see if an investigation is warranted and try to treat each complaint anew. But if you certainly, if you feel like, or you have evidence that these complaints are, they do not genuinely believe that they are a valid complaint, then you could take other action. But again, zero complainers tend to be high risk. So you also want to be very careful. You never know. It's like the boy who cried wolf, right? You never know when one of their complaints might hold water. So you got to look at them every single time. What about refusals to participate? Those can be very challenging. We often don't want to force people to participate in investigation. Some examples of that are the complainant themselves. They complain to somebody in passing. They're talking to HR at a party or an event or the hallway. And then when HR actually calls them to interview them, they say, never, never mind, I want to retract my complaint. Or they tell a supervisor offhandedly that they you know, are concerned, you're my friends, I want to talk to you about this, but I don't want to submit a formal complaint. But your supervisor, because they've been trained, says, well, I've got to take a look at it. You know, and a third example, it would be people saying, nope, I am the accused. I don't want to talk to you about this. 
or a witness not wanting to talk to you about it, you can ask people as a condition of their employment to participate in the investigation. You want to make sure you get as fulsome of an investigation as you possibly can. What I often recommend is that you tell, particularly if it's the complainant or the person that's accused, I usually tell them, hey, if you don't participate, then our information is limited. And if our information is limited, we are going to make a determination based on the information that we have, which may not inert to your benefit, right? So it really is important that they participate if they can participate. And usually we can bring people around to submitting at least some type of statement that we can then use to close out the investigation. Sometimes we get requests for representatives to be present, and we have to take those one by one. What do I mean by that? So you go out to an accused and say, you've been accused of sexual harassment, and they say, I want an attorney to be with me in my interview. And in those types of situations, as long as they're still employed by you, they do not have a right to have an attorney present. It's not a criminal case. You can tell them, no, that's not how we're going to do this. We want you to participate in the investigation. Your attorney does not have a right to be present. Sometimes we'll get spouses that show up and say, nope, I want to be on the phone or I want to be on the line. Again, the spouse has no right to be present. They have no right to answer on behalf of the employee. But what about union employees? So if you have a collective bargaining unit on site, those employees have what we call Weingarten rights. And that means that if we are investigating something and that investigation could lead to discipline for that particular employee, they have the right to request that a union representative be present. And in that particular case, they would have a right to have a union rep or shop steward present for their interview. However, that representative cannot be unduly disruptive to the meeting. They can't stop the progress of the meeting. And they don't have a right to be present if the meeting is only for discipline itself and is not to ask the person questions. But generally speaking, in a union situation, they will be entitled to a representative per Wayne Garten rights. So what should go to this into this investigative report that we've talked about? Sometimes a formal report is required or necessary. The type of complaint is serious. It might involve systematic discrimination or discrimination all. It might involve harassment. It might include a False Claims Act claim or violation, in which case a formal report would be warranted. Often, a formal report is not warranted. It might be something more informal like email records or notes, a quick memo to the file. If you have an attorney involved, you can protect the report under privilege, under work products prepared in anticipation of litigation, or just general attorney-client privilege. Again, if it's that more formal type complaint, you might want to consider bringing your counsel or getting your counsel involved to determine how best to protect some of this information while you as a company decide how you're going to handle that situation. The investigative report, I consider as an internal document for internal purposes. We are generally not going to release that investigative report out to everybody. We might prepare a summary for a contracting officer if they request it or a third party if they request it, but we are not going to provide this particular document. This particular document really goes through all the steps in your investigation, your analysis of what's going on and some possible outcomes, which is, can be very sensitive information. It includes, it includes to that confidentiality issue. Again, it's going to include some of that sensitive confidential information that we don't necessarily want out there. It's bringing all that work that you did to date all together. 
It's going to have a summary of the allegations in the complaint, documents and information that have been reviewed and considered in investigating the complaint. It's going to have your identities of witnesses and options for resolution. It's going to talk about whether we see on the face of this any particular liability for the company, how to resolve the issue. And so, again, it may very well be warranted, but it can contain some very sensitive information that we might not want just running out and around. And that's why we bring we bring up the possibility of engaging counsel to see how to really put this thing together and make sure it's protected to the extent possible. Thank you, Nicole. And so now the investigation's concluded, the employer's deciding whether or not to take any form of corrective action. When doing so, it is important at the end of an investigation to determine only whether the employer's policy has been violated. It is especially important here to avoid making any conclusory findings and statements about whether any law was violated. If the matter is unable to be resolved and and this matter goes forward to potential litigation, statements such as we find the law to be violated or any harassment has occurred here could be seen as an admission of unlawful conduct by the employer in future litigation. Remember, your employees are your agents. And a finding that is tied to legal concepts and conclusions is just stated that the charged party has engaged in discrimination, quote unquote, or that their conduct, quote unquote, constituted harassment may not only be inaccurate under applicable legal standards, but can constitute an admission. So it's very important to limit the findings to whether or not the employer's policies were violated, not whether or not any law per se was violated. So once we finish the complaint, we have our findings. It's important to inform the complaining party of the investigation's results. You do not need to disclose the specific remedial action that will be taken against the charged party, if any at all. But it is important to keep the employee in the loop, as we stated earlier, to show respect to their complaint, be timely, and let them know of the results of the investigation. This keeps the employee with information, knowing that their complaint was taken seriously by their employer and responded to promptly and timely. If the employer decides not to provide any information about the investigation with the results or not be timely with responding to the complaint, conducting an investigation as appropriate, the matter could be escalated and implicate the employer in future litigation possibly. Next, we would want to inform the charged party or the respondent of any disciplinary action that may be taken if any at all. As part of considering disciplinary measures, if the employer determines that there was merit to the complaint and that the employer's policies were probably violated, there's a range of possible outcomes and disciplinary tools an employer has at its disposal. It is not necessary the default to terminating the charged employee, depending on the nature of the allegation. As we stated earlier about potential outcomes for corrective action, You can recommend disciplinary counseling for the charge employee, additional training. Again, if it's in a supervisor and subordinate relationship, removal of the subordinate from the supervisor's chain of command, possible alteration of work environments or work assignments, possible suspension may be employed against the charge party, given the nature of the allegations, and ultimately termination, if believed termination is appropriate, and the employer's judgment regarding the nature of the allegations and the outcome of the investigation. Yeah, and sometimes, Matt, I just 
it's really hard to tell because you have to make these credibility determinations. And all of a sudden, you're put in this position where you really have to figure out who's telling the truth and who's not. And then sometimes in those cases, I recommend training for everybody. Let's just train everybody again. Let's try to push the reset button. So sometimes you, it behooves you to think outside of the box with respect to how we can set things straight. And you're probably not going to make everybody happy, right? It's probably not going to be kumbaya at the end of the day. But I find that most employees appreciate that it was seriously looked at and we are moving forward. Correct. Great point. All right. So what do we do to conclude the investigation? We've talked to the complainant. We've told them, hey, this is what we're looking at. We've talked to the respondent. We've levied any discipline that needs to be done. Now it's time to really tie up the sense, right? So we want to document the results and the corrective action taken. For example, if we do commit to doing some training, let's complete that training, decide what the timetable is for that training, and, and make sure that we have all of our documentation in one place regarding the investigation. You might consider periodic follow-up inquiries with the complainant to ensure that the issue's been resolved. Sometimes what we see is a tendency for a complainant to bring forward a concern once, but if they don't necessarily feel fully you know, vindicated, like you didn't fire the person because they wanted them fired, they don't tend to come back always and complain to you. They might instead, after a time, go out to the EEOC or the Department of Labor or something like that. So it's good to do a follow-up for calendar a couple of times to follow up with the person over the next couple of months and, and just say, I just wanted to check in. How you doing? You know, has the relationship improved? You know, something like that. Not that you're fishing for another complaint, but just some high level, you know, we care about you. We wanted to check in with you. We wanted to make sure you're doing okay. That can go a long way with an employee to show them that you're invested in them and head off some of those administrative complaints. If necessary, if the complaint escalates, you may want to consider informing your insurance carrier of a potential claim if you have employee practices liability insurance. So if you get a demand letter from a lawyer or you get a claim at the EEOC, under your policy, it might require that you provide the insurance company notice of that claim. And that's important because these insurance policies have a number of provisions that they can use to try to disclaim their duty to defend the claim or any liability that comes with the complaint. So as soon as you're on notice of a potential claim that is elevated to a certain level, you want to make sure that you submit that claim to an insurance carrier if you happen to have EPLI insurance. And some employers do and some don't. If you need to, seek legal counsel. So if it's one of those sticky situations where you're just like, I don't know where to go from here, it might involve the government or a third party, it might not be your run-of-the-mill investigation, seek counsel, either through an HR consultant that you have a relationship with, through legal counsel. If you can walk through those steps on the front end, even if you don't present the ultimate EEOC claim or legal action, you can really set yourself up to have a good defense because you've taken the appropriate steps. You've, taken, you've done the things you need to do in order to establish a good defense against the claim. And that's really what we're trying to accomplish here is to put an employer in a good position to remedy something that goes wrong because let's face it, sometimes things go wrong and you need to fix them. And if we get to that point, let's fix that. We can do that. Let's assess the liability and let's fix it. And if 
it's not something that you did wrong to really put yourself in a good position to defend against the claim or better yet, to mitigate your risk and stop the claim from even being filed. And that's really our goal at the end of the day. You know, a lot of times lawyers get accused of overcomplicating things, and I'm not going to admit or deny that we can sometimes do that, right? But at the end of the day, what we really care about is educating our clients and giving you all the tools that you need to defend against the claim. And the earlier that you can get some assistance in those really complicated ones or be organized with a good complaint procedure, you are going to be much better positioned to defend against those claims. Matt, any last comments? You can have the best policies and you can have a fantastic complaint reception and response procedures. And that may not <laughs> prevent ultimately from the employee from escalating the matter further and taking something to, to more formal litigation. But what we've touched on here about having the policies and having a complaint process in place goes a long way to helping the employers to mitigate their risk in the event there is some form of future litigation in which the employer is involved. So sometimes best laid plans <laughs> don't pan out that way, but these measures go a long way to helping an employer mitigate against potential risk. All right. And with that, I think we will conclude for the day. If you happen to have any questions, feel free to email Matt or myself. And we hope everyone has a great rest of the day and great rest of the week. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Polaro Maza production and music credits go to binsound.com. Please subscribe to hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.